Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moser-Katz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie, and you are listening to episode number 47 of the Extra Environmentalist. Today, we're talking with Chris Nelder, an energy analyst and journalist who's going to tell us all about oil and gas, energy markets in the United States and abroad. Yes, that's right, Seth. Today, we are fortunate to have Chris Nelder on the show to explain how oil markets actually work. Where does that price at the pump come from? Where does the oil go when it's pumped out of that field in Saudi Arabia? And we're here to talk about the global transition that our energy system is undergoing at the moment due to peak oil. And this is a discussion on peak oil that's very detailed and talks about the new kind of energy story that we can tell ourselves as we're debating the energy system of the future. And at the end of the interview, we're joined by Gregor McDonald, a journalist who writes about energy and the energy transition that we're dealing with. And a really great example of that energy transition happened last week when India experienced a massive grid failure. 700 million people were dropped out of India's electricity grid when their grid collapsed. And so we're going to talk about some of the implications for that, what it means, and what it means for North America's energy grid as well. So with all that, we'll see you on the other side of the interview. Chris Nelder, you are an energy analyst, journalist, and investor, and have been studying energy for over a decade. You've written two books on investing in energy, and today we're here to talk about oil and gas and the energy infrastructure of the world. I'm looking forward to it. We wanted to start out with some really big questions about energy and about the way that energy operates in society. And so one of our first questions that we had for you was looking at what happens to oil as it's pumped out of the ground and then is actually refined, put into something that's then marketed to consumers in the United States when they go to actually fill up their cars. It's a very complex world out there in terms of how oil is produced and then turned into finished products. If you have a well-established oil province like, say, Texas, oil is pumped out of the ground, usually from a conventional field, and then it goes into a pipeline which may or may not be owned by the same company that pumped the oil out of the ground, and then sent off to a refinery, which may be owned by another company still. And then that oil gets turned into refined products, gasoline, diesel, uh, naphtha, kerosene, uh, all the way down the chain until you get to the heavy stuff like asphalt. And then some of those refined products are sent off to petrochemical plants where they're turned into plastics, um, various kinds of chemicals, pharmaceuticals, all kinds of things like that. The gasoline, diesel, kerosene, and uh, the other kinds of fuels 
are typically loaded into trucks or sometimes pipelines and either sold into the domestic market or exported. In recent years, we've had a lot of decline in U.S. consumption of finished products, of finished products like gasoline and diesel and jet fuel. We've been exporting a lot more of those refined products than we have in the past. So on a products basis, that is the, the finished products after the oil is refined, the U.S. switched from being a net importer of refined products to a net exporter of refined products because the rest of the world, their, their demand is still increasing, particularly in Asia and India. And so some journalists were very confused by this and decided to start saying that we had become a net oil exporter, which is not at all the case. We're still the world's largest oil importer by far. But we are exporting more finished products like diesel to the rest of the world than we're importing. The majority of our finished product imports are gasoline. The U.S. consumed a, a couple years ago, I'm not sure if this statistic is still accurate, 40% of the world's gasoline. And that's because most of the rest of the world runs on diesel. So we still import a fair amount of gasoline, but on a net basis, we export more refined products than we import now. So I just watched Blood Done Sign My Name, where they dig down to the ground and find that oil for the first time. And people are out in west and finding big oil fields. Can you talk to us a little bit about how oil is found and what the process is about finding oil and, and how it has changed over the years? Well, in the old days, geologists would literally just cruise around the world looking for certain kinds of geological formations, hills, outcroppings, basins, things like that. And with their knowledge, their models of the way that the Earth's crust has changed over hundreds of millions of years, they would be able to identify areas where oil might exist and then they would start drilling some prospective holes to see if they could find anything. In today's world, we have far more advanced tools where they'll do seismic modeling. They'll actually thump the ground with mechanical devices that create vibrations. And then sensors will listen for those vibrations. And then they can feed all that data into a computer and create a model of what the shape of the Earth likely looks like down below and try to figure out where the oil might be in the appropriate kinds of locations. Uh, I guess maybe a little bit of history is in order here of how oil is formed. Oil was formed, most of it, at the edges of primeval oceans and inland seas that were relatively shallow. And you had a lot of organic matter coming in from the land that would wash into these areas and then also be covered occasionally by sand and silt that also washed in. And so all this organic matter washing into this relatively warm water would create these huge algae blooms. And those waters would then become anoxic. The algae would deplete the oxygen in the water. And so it would then die and fall to the bottom. But because of the lack of oxygen and getting covered over with dirt and sand, it would not actually decompose. It would just lay there and sort of get covered over and compressed. And over a period of hundreds of millions of years, this stuff would get pushed down to the point where it reached the right temperature and pressure to get cooked. In oil industry parlance, they call it the kitchen. So that organic matter, which again is mainly algae, not dead dinosaurs, 
would get cooked down in a process called thermal depolymerization. And it would basically break down these long chain organic molecules into smaller bits. And that over time becomes crude oil. Or if you break it down under higher temperature and pressure, it becomes natural gas. Coal, by the way, is formed by the same sort of process, only instead of happening at the edge of primeval seas, it would happen in peat bogs. Again, organic matter, mainly plants, getting compressed and buried over long geological time and broken down. Then this oil that, or natural gas that was then created, of course, would have a tendency to leak back up to the surface. Somewhere over 90% of all the oil that was ever formed in geological history did leak to the surface and was degraded by bacteria and basically disappeared. So what we have left today is that small remnant of oil or natural gas that is in some part of the Earth's crust where it has a trap over it, usually a, a limestone cap or a sandstone cap or a salt dome that keeps that oil and gas from escaping to the surface. The geologists are looking for these specific formations, these traps, where you might still have some oil and gas if you can get through that cap and get to it. So in the past, we always would find the cheapest or the largest deposits of oil that were the most accessible, closest to the surface or in the most obvious type of geological formations. Some of the early wells, of course, uh, like in Pennsylvania or California, were drilled in places where the oil actually seeped to the surface and they could see it just sitting there on the ground. And so they knew that it was down there somewhere. We've exploited all the easy-to-get large formations in the U.S. Now we're having to go to more extreme lengths to find usable oil and gas. So, in, for example, in the case of the shale formations, like the Bakken Shale in North Dakota, what you have there is what they call the source rocks. The rocks that actually produce the oil are trapped in a sort of a shale formation where you don't have these big deposits under a cap. What you have is a very scattered, kind of a very non-porous rock where you have to actually go down and break it up. So that's what we've got with horizontal drilling and fracking, where you drill down into these source rocks and you drill horizontally through these thin seams of rock and then you subject it to pressure with hydrofracking and you actually break those rocks up deep underground and allow some of the liquid and gas to flow out to collection wells. So we've really gone from a very different time in the past, 100 years ago, where you could punch a hole in the ground and get a gusher in Texas to a point where you have to actually go down and you have to actually create porosity in the rock and make it possible for oil and gas to flow. So it's a very different situation now. So it's interesting that they call it fossil fuels then if there's no dinosaurs needed to create the actual material that we take out of the ground. And just a, another point that you made, you said it's made with, with algae compression. And don't we have a lot of algae and lots of ways to make pressure right now? Why can't we just make our own oil? You know, in some ways, the algal biofuel is working on kind of a similar thing, only they're actually just sort of artificially reproducing what nature did. It's not really a direct parallel. But you have to remember that all of this fossil fuel that we produce now was created over a period of hundreds of millions of years. Like most of the oil we produce today was formed between 90 and 150 million years ago during periods of extreme global warming. Yes, I mean, in a sense, algae in the ocean today 
is doing the same process that was happened in the geological past. And at some point, long in the distant future, that will turn into new oil. But what's happening now is we've taken the oil that took hundreds of millions of years for nature to create, and we've sucked about half of it out the ground in 150 years. Wow. In, in another 150 years, if we are able to maintain modern civilization and keep producing this oil with ever more extreme technology and ever higher costs, in another 100, 150 years, it'll be gone. So it's really not even just about the techniques that are involved in producing that oil. The time itself is very crucial to the process? Yes, absolutely. One of the things that we were wondering about is what happens once that oil is placed on either some kind of shipment or shipped around the world and then people actually start trading futures, placing that commodity on international financial markets. How does that process play out? I'm sure it's extremely complex, but we could just get, you know, a little bit of an idea of how it works. <laughs> yes, very complex. Well, all the places in the world where oil is produced, you know, they have to sell that oil, whether it's produced in China or Saudi Arabia or the U.S. or South America or Africa. And the only natural buyer for crude oil is a refinery. I mean, you can't really do anything with crude oil directly. I mean, well, you can in Saudi Arabia. They still burn a fair amount of crude oil for power generation, but that's only because it's so incredibly cheap for them to produce it. It doesn't really make sense to use crude oil that way. So wherever the oil is produced, it has to get sold to a refinery. So a refinery buys that oil on the futures market through forward futures contracts. And there's a lot of complexity in how they do that. If they think that oil is going to be cheaper two months from now than it is today, then they might buy a lot more contracts two months from now and just sort of wait to take delivery on that oil. Likewise, companies or industries that use a lot of oil or use a lot of refined products like the airline industry that are exceptionally sensitive to changes in the oil price will hedge on the futures curve because you can buy futures on oil long into the future, a year or two in advance. And they will try to balance out what their ultimate cost is by playing with the futures curve and trying to hedge against it. Sometimes you're, you're buying long, sometimes you're selling short. All of this discussion that we've had in recent years about speculators manipulating the oil market is really about what they call non-commercial traders. That is, participants in the futures market for oil who are not refineries, financial institutions and things like that. And so they can also trade on the futures market. The trade is regulated to a certain extent and it is restricted to a certain extent, but certainly there are participants on the futures market who are very active, who are not ultimate consumers of the oil. Those options to buy or to sell the oil at a particular price that these refineries and the other markets have that mean that just because I see the price of oil going up or down, it's not going to impact the price at the pump for a particular time? Or is there more to it than that? Yeah, it's pretty complex. Ultimately, the only a recipient of a cargo of crude oil is going to be a refinery, right? So even if you have a financial trader out there buying and selling contracts, ultimately those contracts have to be sold to a refinery who is then going to take receipt of the oil. And so that oil will be delivered to the refinery either through a pipeline or through a, a tanker. And then they, they take that oil on board and they refine it and then they start moving out the finished product. This happens all over the world every day. The world consumes just shy of 90 million barrels a day of oil. And this is a global market. So 
if a given cargo of crude leaving Saudi Arabia, it could go anywhere. It could go to China. It could go to the U.S. It could go to somewhere else. And it all depends on who's willing to pay the most. It's a very complex market. There are dozens of oil benchmarks around the world. I mean, you normally hear of two main ones. You hear of West Texas Intermediate, the main benchmark in the U.S., which designates oil of a certain grade delivered to Cushing, Oklahoma, which is sort of the main transit point for oil in the U.S. And you hear of Brent, which is the main benchmark for crude in Europe, which is also a very specific blend of oil. And that's more of a global indicator for oil prices than West Texas Intermediate. But there are dozens of grades, and it's not just where the oil is coming from, but what its composition is. There's light sweet crudes, there's heavy sour crudes, there's all kinds of intermediate crude blends in between. And you have to have certain refinery configurations to take on certain kinds of crude. So in the U.S., most of our refineries handle light sweet crude, but the light sweet crude is generally on the decline in the world. It's the most desirable kind of crude because it has low sulfur and it's easy to refine into gasoline, and you can refine it with what's called a simple refinery. A lot of the crude that remains in places like Saudi Arabia or Venezuela is what they call heavy sour crude. So it takes a lot more processing. You have a lot more sulfur and heavy metals in it. And it's far more likely to produce, say, diesel and asphalt than it is gasoline just because of the composition of the crude itself. So you need what's called a complex refinery, which has a lot of additional equipment and processes that can crack up these larger heavy molecules in the heavy sour crude and turn it into more light refined products like gasoline. So you have to have the right match between the type of crude that you're buying and the type of refinery that you're going to put that through. And if a cargo is coming from a place like, say, Saudi Arabia, you have to take into account, of course, the shipping costs because it takes a lot of fuel to send a tanker right. across the world. So there gets to be a very complex market, a very complex daily global market, which cargos are going to wind up where and, and who's going to pay what for them. And you were just mentioning a moment ago that the light sweet crude has been declining in its availability. And I'm wondering what that does to refineries. Are there so many refineries that have been built to refine that light sweet crude and then now they're finding that they can't stay in business because the main thing that's available are other grades of crude? Yeah, to a certain extent, that's part of why the U.S. refining complex has been declining in the last couple of years where relatively low utilization rates in our refining complex relative to where we were just, say, a couple of years ago in 2007, where all of our refineries were cranking full out. But it's only part of the picture. I mean, it also has to do with where's the crude coming from? Can you get it to the refinery at the right price so that you can sell the refined product at the right price and so on? Part of what we're seeing in the decline in the refineries in the U.S. Uh, Northeast is that they can't get cargoes at the right price and then sell those cargoes or sell the refined products at the right price. It does have to do with the type of refinery, but it also has to do with the availability of oil and, and so on. On a scale of just getting an idea of what kind of financial operation a refinery is, like how much does it cost in a really broad ballpark to start building a refinery and like how long are these timelines to build something like that? Well, we haven't built a new refinery in the U.S. for over 30 years. I'm really not sure what it costs to build a new refinery today in a place like, say, China or Saudi Arabia. Probably a couple hundred million dollars at least to build a new refinery. 
so is it not even cost effective to build a new refinery at this point? I mean, is there enough oil in the ground to justify a new refinery being built? You mean in the U.S.? Oh, yeah. No, it doesn't really make sense for us to keep building new refineries because the vast majority of the oil that we consume is coming from somewhere else. We consume a lot more oil than we're producing here in the U.S. We consume about almost 19 million barrels. Well, we consumed 18.8 million barrels a day of oil in 2011 on an annual basis, but we only produced 5.7 million barrels a day. So about two-thirds of the crude came from outside the U.S. And of course, our number one... Where does one, that come from? Where does the oil come from? Uh, the number one supplier of imported oil for the U.S. is Canada. And then so, where do they, how does it break down after that? Our top producers are uh, beyond Canada, are Saudi Arabia, Mexico, Venezuela, Angola. I don't have a ranked list uh, off the top of my head. I probably should. But we get oil from all over the world, and we have more than enough refinery capacity. In recent years or so, we've been in the low 80 percentile range in terms of our refinery utilization. So we have more refining capacity than we need. And as our domestic consumption of refined products falls, we have less and less need for those refineries to do what they do. If we were to suddenly have an explosion of domestic oil production, then we might cut back on imports and we might start running those refineries at higher utilization rates, but I'm skeptical about that. So on a global basis, and again, it's all a global market, even the refined products like gasoline and diesel, that's all a global market. If the U.S. consumer can't pay $4.50 a gallon, but a consumer in China can, then instead of gasoline being taken from refineries in the U.S. and sent to U.S. gas stations, it's going to get loaded into a tanker and sent to China. Well, that's uh, unless we uh, park a tank in the middle of the oil field, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. So, yeah, I mean, really what's happening on a global basis is that the whole refining complex is moving closer. It's moving upstream, they say. It's moving closer and closer to where the oil is actually being produced. In the past, the U.S. being by far the largest consumer of uh, refined products in the world had the world's largest refining capacity because we needed the finished product more than anyone else. So it made a lot of sense for crude to be loaded into tankers, sent to the U.S., and then refined and turned into the products that we use. But as our domestic consumption declines and the consumption elsewhere increases, particularly again in, in China, it makes more sense for the refineries to be located where the crude is actually being produced, like in Saudi Arabia, and then simply ship the refined product over. I mean, for one thing, there's a lot less shipping cost in sending the refined product than there is the crude. So we've effectively run through half of the oil you said in the last 150 years. That is low-hanging fruit. That's the easy-to-find oil. As we continue to use oil and continue to consume at an ever-increasing rate, we have to go deeper and farther out into the ocean just to find that oil. At what point does it become energy-effective not to, to drill for that oil? That's a really, really good question. The whole world would really like to know the answer to that question. I have some ideas about it. Really, the cost in terms of dollars and the cost in terms of energy are really two distinct questions, but they're related. So as a financial matter, it makes sense to keep producing crude to the extent that you can sell the refined product, okay? So in recent years, it looks as though the pain tolerance threshold in the U.S. is somewhere around $4 a gallon. When gasoline gets over $4 a gallon or when jet fuel gets over the equivalent price, people start cutting back on their driving and their flying 
decline. When oil got up to $147 a barrel in July of 2008, that was a very brief peak, and then oil prices crashed. But that was coincident with this whole global economic crash, which was precipitated in the financial sector. We don't really know exactly what the absolute limit is for consumers willing to pay for fuel, but it's probably around $4, $4.50 a gallon. That's the limit at which you can't really sell any more gasoline in the U.S. In Asia, they're willing to pay a little more than we are, and they've been outbidding the West since 2005. They've been willing to pay more, but they also have a limit to what they're willing to pay. So that's the upper limit, okay? Then there's a lower limit at which you start to destroy supply. So, for example, in the Bakken Shale in the U.S. and in North Dakota, you need to have at least $70 a barrel, preferably $80 a barrel, to make it profitable to produce that oil. Once you fall below that point, then you start killing supply because it's no longer profitable for oil companies and their investors to keep drilling for oil. If, if oil were, say, $50 a barrel, we would have an immense amount of supply destruction because it isn't profitable to produce it anymore. And so the same dynamic would happen with the Canadian tar sands as well? Yes, that's right. We had a recent statement from a gentleman with um, Canadian National Resources, I believe it was, saying under 80 or $85 a barrel, whatever it was, tar sands producers are going to be very unhappy. So they need that a minimum of 80 $85 a barrel to keep investing in producing tar sands oil. So this is what I've been calling the narrow ledge of oil prices. Below $80 a barrel or thereabouts, you start to kill supply. And above $100, $105 a barrel, you start to kill demand. So the point at which it stops making sense to drill for oil is either the point at which oil prices are too low to make it profitable or too high to sell the refined product like gasoline and diesel. Is there like a creeping normal kind of factor that kind of happens with the American gas system? I mean, back in 2008, we had never seen a, a price above $4 a gallon. But right now, in where I live, it, it kind of bounces around between 360 all the way up to like 387 I th I've seen it as high as. And people don't really seem to be giving it as much thought nowadays as they did in 2008. Is there like that creeping normal factor when you turn the heat up slowly on a lobster, it doesn't jump out of the pot? There is a certain amount of that. I think the North American consumers have become slowly habituated to higher oil prices, higher gasoline prices. And really, fuel prices are still a fairly small part of disposable income. I think it's around 5% on average in the U.S. But it's really still very high relative to the disposable income of the lower income part of the country. It's really hard for them to buy gasoline. And then at the high end, you've got a limit on who can afford to still run around in inefficient large vehicles. So there is an extent to which the consumer has become habituated to these higher prices, and, and they're slowly responding by buying more efficient vehicles or just getting rid of their vehicles and taking public transportation or moving to city centers where they can walk and take public transit or get around on a bicycle. We are seeing a, a gradual shift in the way that people live in America that is a response to this kind of consistently higher prices, at least relative to the past. But these are very slow transformations, and they're also really hard to detect in the data. We don't have government bureaus that track how many people have given up their cars and switched to a bicycle or, or moved from the suburbs to the inner city. You know, it's hard to really find that stuff. But we do see 
a lot of evidence to say that, that people are doing that. We've been talking for the last few minutes about oil markets and the way that they play out and the way that oil is produced and the way that it's sent all around the world. But part of that story has been the decreasing availability of that easy to access oil. And so this is everything that the peak oil community talks about in, in terms of energy availability. And if we were to sit back and actually take a, a rational standpoint and you know government started talking about how to deal with this issue, what would be some of the first steps forward in dealing with this issue of peak oil? It really depends on what scale you're talking about. I mean, on a personal level, I think people can do things I was just saying. They can move closer to city centers so they don't have to drive as much or drive at all. They can find various ways to reduce their fuel consumption. And they can do a lot of other things like grow their own food so it doesn't have to be shipped so far from somewhere else. But at a broader level, I'll say at a national policy level, we have to be really thinking much, much bigger. We have to be thinking about, for example, ditching the entire car and road infrastructure and moving to rail and ditching airplanes, particularly for trips under 500 miles and moving to rail. Because as we move into the oil-constrained future, it's just not going to be possible to keep running a nation of 240 million cars and light trucks. That's not going to work. There isn't going to be enough fuel that we can afford to do that. So at some point, we have to really bite off some very large transformations in the way that we live. We have to think about transportation transition, as I was just saying, but we also have to really think about energy transition in a broader sense. We have to think about getting off of liquid fuels completely and moving toward electric power from renewables. And that's a very interesting point because we talked with Ozzy Zenner, who wrote the book Green Illusions, about how we in the Western developed world are reliant on oil. And he said that there's really nothing that's going to be able to replace oil in the same kind of way that oil exists right now. Our food supply, our transportation system, our pharmaceutical industry is all based around oil. What do we transition and how do we create that electricity that you're talking about? Yeah, I listened to Ozzy's podcast with you guys. It was a really interesting chat. But the key, as you said, is right now. Right now, it's absolutely true that we can't do without liquid fuels. We must have them. And I think it's probably inevitable that over the next coming decades, we're going to drill every last bit of liquid fuel that we can out of the U.S. and Canada. We simply can't run our economy without it. Absolutely everything that we do depends on liquid fuel, whether it's food production or getting goods and services around. Uh, absolutely everything depends on oil. It's embedded in everything we eat, everything in our houses, everything in our lives, everything we do. But if you really zoom out from that picture and you see that by the end of this century, in the models that I believe say that we're probably not going to have any oil to speak of by the end of that century. So we have about 90 years to make a, a really enormous transition in the way that we get energy and the way that we run our societies. And most of what we do today cannot be done in the future. I mean, you only have to go out maybe two decades and you'll see that it doesn't work anymore. So in order to supply that energy from renewables, most everything will have to be transitioned off of liquid fuels and onto electricity. It doesn't really make sense, I don't think, to try to do that with over 200 million cars and light trucks. It makes a lot more sense to do that with rail, which is far more energy efficient, first of all, but it means a lot less infrastructure that you have to rebuild. Most of our trains already run on electricity. It so happens that they generate that electricity on board from diesel fuel. 
but there's no reason why those trains can't be running on electricity supplied via the rails or, or via the infrastructure of the train itself. A lot of the trains in Japan, for example, run on electricity. So that's part of it. But the other part of it is Ozzy was really talking about the difficulty of plugging in a vast amount of new renewable generated electricity into our existing grid. And you can't do that. I mean, you can't do that any more than you can build a house without building a foundation under it. Uh, of course, it's going to fall over if you do that. So I think his comments, while accurate in the immediate term, were not really appropriate looking forward. If you want to accommodate a massive new amount of renewably powered electricity onto the grid, you have to upgrade the grid. And in so doing, you can deal with the main problem with renewables, which is storage. That's the main issue. The wind doesn't blow all the time in every place, and the sun doesn't shine all the time in every place. Geothermal electricity, for example, and marine energy do produce energy all of the time. Those are basically easy substitutes for what we call baseload power today, which is generated mainly by coal and nuclear power. But you have to update the grid in order to accommodate that and you have to provide some storage. Now, part of what Ozzy was talking about in storage is pumped hydro storage like they're doing in Norway. That's a good solution for some parts of the U.S. and elsewhere in the world. We can definitely do more pumped hydro storage than we have now. But another part of it is simply having more interconnection in the grid. So the wider your grid goes in its ability to pass power around, the less of a storage problem you have because when the wind isn't blowing in one place, it is blowing somewhere else. And if you can transmit that power effectively, you've reduced your storage problem. But there are other types of storage solutions, some of which are not invented yet, but I think will be. I'm very bullish on new storage technologies. I think we're going to have some real breakthroughs in that in the next decade or two. And some of it simply has to do with using what we have now more effectively. For example, if we had a lot more electric vehicles than we do today, let's say 50 million electric vehicles in the U.S., we could do quite a bit of energy storage with what they call vehicle-to-grid technology, where you're using all these little distributed batteries in these cars as a very short-term type of energy storage. We can do it with more distributed battery capacity. We can do it in a lot of different ways. We can do it with compressed air storage underground. We can do it with molten salts in solar thermal plants. There's a lot of different technologies here, but the key is that by distributing those storage technologies and by distributing the electricity around on the grid more effectively than we can do today, we can accommodate a lot more renewable energy onto the grid than we can do today. But we can't simply take a whole mess of new renewable power and just plug it onto the existing grid. That's not going to work. That's not what this grid was designed to do. It's not robust enough to handle that. It doesn't really have the ability to do large volume, long distance shipping of power. You know, one of the things that we really probably should do is a national, uh, what they call a high voltage DC grid. We should put a new grid in that would allow us to ship large quantities of wind power from the Midwest, solar power from the Southwest, and so on, and move it around the country. But you can't do that with the existing grid. So as an article that I wrote recently called why baseload power is doomed. As I argued in that article, the problem that so many deniers or skeptics about renewable energy 
complain about is that the grid isn't designed to handle the power, so therefore we shouldn't generate the power. Well, that's silly. What you need to do is upgrade the grid. So, you know, I compared it to the ancient Chinese practice of foot binding, where you'd bind the feet of children and keep them wrapped up tightly until they grew into adults with tiny little feet. It was a beauty fetish. And I think that's essentially what we have now with people that are so dour about the possibility of renewables. It's like, you know, you're just fetishizing this old clunky grid that we have. The problem is not that feet are too big. The problem is that the shoes are too small. When infrastructure is so poor in our nation's capital, that Canada has to come help us whenever there's heavy rain and wind. Wooden power poles are no match for 70 mile per hour winds and falling trees. The U.S. government is spending so much money to rebuild Iraq. So why is it shortchanging this country? It's already spent $60 billion on Iraqi infrastructure just from 2003 to 2006. Well, a lot of people say it's hot in Iraq. Over 100 degrees pretty much all summer long. Well, guess what? It's sweltering hot here in D.C. too. And we could have picked almost any uh, of, of many, many streets in the Virginia, Maryland, Washington, D.C. area to show you a scene like this. A massive tree down right on top of a car, power lines down. At the height of the outages, we had more than 5 million people without electricity. Now it's somewhere around 2 million. But Katrina wiped out power to 3 million. So that tells you how many people here have been struggling. With no air conditioning, no ice, no fans, communities have opened cooling centers like this one in Arlington, Virginia, for anyone seeking relief and a battery charge. And limited electricity means only a handful of gas stations are open in the D.C. area. But even here in the Virginia, Maryland, D.C. area, 911 centers have not been operating at full capacity because they've also lost electricity and they don't have enough generator power to keep everything up and running. But people are growing more frustrated with the leaders here in Washington. Doesn't seem like they can agree on anything these days. And when it comes to politically neutral issues like maintaining infrastructure and transportation. Still, lawmakers seem to be deadlocked. Meanwhile, America's infrastructure is crumbling. Plenty of roads and bridges in desperate need of repair. This is the last way delivery man Mike Sweeney ever expected he'd be commuting to work. How did you used to commute? Like everybody else. Drive over the bridge. No big deal. No big deal. That's the Lake Champlain Bridge between New York and Vermont when there still was a bridge. FDR opened it in 1928 and it carried as many as 4,000 vehicles a day until last fall when, with almost no warning, it was closed. The American Society of Civil Engineers issues a report card every four years on the state of America's infrastructure. And the last one in 2009 was not good at all. The overall grade was a D. 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 That's as good as it gets. <laughs> and it's not getting any better. Back in 2005, we also did a report card, and it was still a D there, so we haven't gained any ground. Instead of spending tons of money to destroy and rebuild other countries, 
why not spend the much-needed cash to ensure that our power grid can handle one storm? Engineers insist if we don't start spending money and spending it wisely, more and more Americans will end up in the same boat as Mike Sweeney and soon. What the hell, you guys? Stop telling us these lies. All we want at this point is air conditioning in our lives. This is KMO of the Sea Realm Podcast, and you are listening to the Extra Environmentalist Podcast. Keep the lights on in DC. What the hell, you guys? Stop telling us these lies. All we want at this point is air conditioning in our lives. These kinds of discussions are not the kinds of conversations that I hear in the mainstream from any political candidates, mainstream news networks. It's often the typical, you know, we need more nuclear, we need more wind or those types of discussions. And you had a piece recently about telling a new story about our energy future. And I'm wondering if you have any insights into how we can start telling that story and what the dire consequences could be if we don't make that transition. We're telling ourselves a lot of stories right now about energy and something that I really try to do is think about where this is all going. You know, what does the future look like? If you pick up any major newspaper today, you'll see a new story that started to go around in the last year or so about some incipient energy independence coming to the U.S. from these really low-grade resources like the Bakken Shale or the Eagle Ford or so on. What those stories aren't telling you is what it really takes to produce oil from this stuff. They're not really telling you that as the IEA recently identified in its paper, Golden Rules for a Golden Age of Natural Gas, that the US would have to drill half a million new gas wells between now and 2035 to achieve this vision of natural gas for the future. And that of those half a million wells to be drilled in the U.S., a lot of them are going to be drilled in areas where people live. They're not just out there somewhere in a piece of land where nobody lives. So we can expect to have wells in our backyards? If you're lucky enough to live over a gas-bearing area, very well could be. I mean, ask the people who live in the Marcellus Shale of Pennsylvania or who live in North Dakota or who live in Colorado. That's what we're talking about. One of the very prominent tellers of this new energy independence story is an investment unit with Citigroup, which has suggested that we could achieve energy independence in the U.S., by 2020. And I've shredded their report. I think they've made a lot of really unrealistic assumptions. But if we just take that projection at face value and allow that U.S. petroleum production climbs from 5.8 million barrels a day last year to almost double that, 10.2 million barrels a day by 2020, and that if we remove all limits on drilling in the U.S., so we go into Anwar, we go into the Outer Continental Shelf, we go into all the federal lands, I calculate that it would basically cut the lifespan of our resources in half. Under today's estimates for the U.S. oil, if we leave out the undiscovered resources and we just maintain today's current production rate, we would exhaust U.S. oil in about 39 years. All the way gone? No more oil coming out of the ground at all? That's sucking up all of our existing reserves, okay, at today's production rate. But if we try to go for this energy independence story, and that's really about eliminating imports, so we're relying more on our own resources. Instead of exhausting U.S. oil in 39 years, we'd exhaust it in 22. Wow. So there's a finite amount of it. As 
peak oil maven, petroleum geologist Colin Campbell likes to explain, peak oil is a subject that any beer drinker knows. The glass starts full and it ends empty, and the faster you drink it, the quicker it's gone. It's really very simple. <laughs> yeah. What I'm wondering is where do these guys come off in putting out reports like that? Do you think that they're just completely misguided in the data that they're getting? Or is there some kind of industry guy behind the table who's feeding them money or any combination of those dynamics? It's hard to say without knowing, but it seems to me that it's very politically driven. They come out with editorial after editorial talking about energy independence, really promoting this idea of a new age of prosperity for the U.S., all the tax revenues, all the jobs. They talk about all these very politically popular ideas, but they never tell you exactly what it would take to get there. It's only a few analysts like myself that busted out a spreadsheet and said, okay, well, you're talking about producing another 5 million barrels a day from wells that produce 80 barrels a day or 100 barrels a day on average and pencil it out and go, okay, well, we need another 16,000 wells like the ones we have in the Bakken to get another 2 million barrels a day from shale oil, which is the Citigroup prediction. That's five times the number of wells that exist in the Bakken today. And you can't drill that many wells in the Bakken. There's not enough prospective area in the Bakken to drill that many wells. So it's really a politically motivated story. A lot of it has to do with election year politics. The oil and gas industry tends to be right wing and they really want President Obama out of office. And so they're seizing an opportunity here to make some political hay and maybe bend policies in the direction that's favorable to them. But in terms of the data, what I see out there and all the data that I'm giving you here is from the Energy Information Administration in the U.S. I mean, I'm, I'm not making these numbers up. This is official U.S. government statistics. You really have to dig into the data to figure out what it all means. And then none of these projections of energy independence make any sense at all. It doesn't even make economic sense for us to draw down what's left of our own oil resources as quickly as possible to drink that beer as fast as we can pound it down. That doesn't make any sense. It makes far more sense for us to continue buying imports and save what we have left for a rainy day. And let me tell you, we don't just have a rainy day coming. We have a hurricane coming. 50 years from now, oil is going to be so dear and so hard to get. We're going to be wishing that we had a lot more domestic resources than we have. So that's one story, this energy independence story, which is really, like I say, I think it's more about politics than anything else. Another story is what happens as we get down the backside of Hubbard's curve? What happens as oil in the second half of the age of oil, when it's increasingly expensive, increasingly difficult to get at, increasingly risky, so you have the increasing risk of blowouts two miles under the ocean surface like we had in 2010 in the Gulf of Mexico. Oil gets more expensive, it gets more difficult, it gets more risky. Okay, so what happens when you get, say, two, three decades down the line? on that story. Well, what happens is if you haven't found ways to run your society on less oil, then your economy goes into permanent contraction. You start to shrink. You have to. There's really no alternative. And as your economy shrinks, you go into deflationary spiral and that deflationary spiral makes it harder and harder to climb out economically. So that's kind of a dirty, scary story. There's a much scarier version of that story that I won't go into now. But let me tell you another story. There's a story that we really have yet to figure out, that we have yet to tell. 
And that's one about a different type of society than we have today that runs on renewable power that doesn't spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year on imported oil that runs on renewables where people don't run around in their cars but they get on trains where food doesn't transit 1500 miles on average to get to your table but rather is sourced locally it's a story about a new type of independence for our economy but not the kind that's being peddled right now by the oil and gas industry and that's the story that we all have to sort of figure out for ourselves. I think for the most part, that story will evolve in a bottom-up rather than a top-down fashion. It's going to evolve by individuals making choices, maybe deliberately, but maybe just out of necessity, on how they can reduce their personal consumption of oil and how they can reconfigure their lives to be more self-sufficient. And that's going to evolve over a period of decades. And I'm very bullish on that. I think we're going to have innumerable kinds of changes that transpire in our society over the coming decades as people find ways within their local means and with their own personal means to adjust to an era of declining fuel. But I am not bullish on top-down policies finding ways to execute energy transition or, for that matter, even transportation transition. We've got such a chronic case of regulatory and legislative capture. I just don't see how we can get the right policies put into place with the way that our Congress functions today. I was going to ask about Japan because they are going through one of the most rapid energy transitions in the world right now. How is the fallout from Fukushima proceeding to ripple throughout the society and how are they adapting their use of energy? One of the things, of course, that they've done is find ways to immediately curtail their electricity consumption. So instead of marketplaces having all these lights blazing all the time, they've got a small handful of uh, LEDs providing just enough light. Consumers are switching over to various kinds of much more efficient appliances, whether it's air conditioners and washers and dryers and certainly lighting. There's a lot more LEDs happening over there and some really, really cool innovations that I've seen happening in LEDs in Japan that are programmed to provide bright blue light in the daytime and then softer yellower light in the evening using far, far less energy than incandescence. And of course, another thing they're doing is really incentivizing more and more renewables, particularly solar. I mean, they've already been one of the world's top adopters of solar over the last 10 years or so, but there's far more that they can do. And I think ultimately, they're probably going to be one of the leaders in the world in terms of finding ways to harvest marine energy, perhaps even methane hydrates. They've already been working on ways to do that for a couple of years. But in the short term, it also means that they will have to consume more coal and that they're going to be consuming more imported natural gas because, again, these these transitions to renewables take a long time. I mean, on a global basis, changing context a little bit, around 2% of the world's total primary energy supply comes from true renewables, solar, wind, and geothermal, and so on. It's going to take decades to even get up to like 20% with that. And so Japan is going to have to accelerate that having rather abruptly dropped their nuclear power supply. The first thing they're doing is exactly the first thing that, that the whole world should be doing, and especially the U.S., and that's efficiency. Find ways to cut the waste. Find ways to get by with less energy. That's obviously the first thing that they're doing. But over time, they will gradually transition to more renewable power. 
Thorium has come up before on our show, and I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the role that it could potentially play in our energy future. I'm very skeptical about thorium reactors. You know, we've known about this technology for a very long time. It's been a, a Wall Street darling on and off for, oh, geez, the better part of 10 years now. And still, we don't have any commercial reactors. I think potentially it could be an interesting technology. But on the whole, I'm just not bullish about nuclear. I think the costs of nuclear power are just so very high. It, it wouldn't work at all without billions of dollars of government loan guarantees and liability limits. Uh, if they had to function like any normal free enterprise company without government support, it, it wouldn't work at all. And the costs have just been skyrocketing to build new nuclear plants. And a lot of that has to do with the rising cost of oil because you have to ship enormous amounts of material. You have to burn a lot of diesel. You have to create a lot of cement and steel and so on. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm just skeptical. I, You know, I know that there are people out there that are just rabid nuclear supporters and think that it's the only solution for the future, but we're already at the point where wind can compete with nuclear power on a levelized cost basis. I think within 10 years, solar will already be cost competitive with nuclear power. And the cost of wind and solar is going to continue to fall and the cost of nuclear power is going to continue to rise. And just because you've got a different fuel cycle like thorium doesn't mean that you're exempt from the extraordinarily high cost of building reactors and the very long lead times. Let's say we authorized the construction of a new thorium reactor in the U.S. today. It'd probably be 10 years before that thing came online. I just think they cost too much. They take too long. The cost outlook is not good. And I think ultimately they're just going to lose out to renewables on not just a cost basis, but just on the fact that you could build easily the equivalent amount of solar and wind power as a new nuclear reactor over 10 years before that reactor even got commissioned. And speaking about nuclear power, one of the countries in the world right now that's making a big transition, a conscious transition away from nuclear power is Germany. And they are investing heavily in renewable energy technologies. Could you speak a little bit about the energy transition that Germany is going through and whether you think it's possible or are they being overly ambitious? I think Germany is doing a fine job of transitioning to renewables. They're very gung-ho about it. They've put into place the right kinds of policies to really make it possible to build out their capacity pretty rapidly. And they're finding that the cost being passed on to the consumers is actually something that consumers can accommodate. It's not so awful as skeptics and, and renewable energy opponents once claimed. And in fact, just this last month or two, there was a couple of widely circulated charts showing that just a couple of years ago, I think it was 2008, the cost of power on the grid in Germany, you know, would, would follow kind of a typical profile. It would spike up around nine o'clock in the morning. It would hit a peak around two o'clock in the afternoon and power prices would stay high until about 6 p.m. Now, because of all the solar and wind that they've got on their grid, power prices jump up around nine in the morning and then they fall down and they stay low throughout the middle of the day because that's when the solar is most productive. So it has actually already reduced German grid power prices substantially just after a couple years. And overall, when you go through time and you figure out, okay, well, what does that really mean to consumers? They're ultimately going to be paying less than if they had just 
stayed with fossil fueled power on their grids. But it, it just takes a while. So this is the real problem is that with renewables, you essentially have to pay for everything up front. You're essentially buying 20 or 30 years worth of power up front, and then you're getting the benefit of that over time. But the fuel doesn't cost you anything. Whereas with traditional fossil fuel power, you have basically just a plant construction cost, which is relatively low at the outset, but then you're paying increasing prices for the fuel over time. So I think Germany is, is, has done a wonderful job of setting a great example for the rest of the world on how to not only build out their grid to accommodate a new power, and clearly they have more work to do on that, but they have shown that they can accommodate 20% of their power supply from renewables, which opponents of renewables said was never even possible. And I think they can go a lot more. I think as they continue to work on building out their grid, making it smarter, and working on energy efficiency. I mean, Germany has some of the most efficient appliances in the Western world. And they're working on, of course, retrofitting their building stock, their homes, and their businesses so that they're more energy efficient. I think they're really setting a great example for the rest of the world. And to the extent that they think they can achieve somewhere close to 100% of their power supply from renewables, I think they should go for it. I think we should find out exactly what can be done if you really put your mind to it. Why are places like Germany and Japan investigating these new sorts of energy sources and the United States is lagging behind in so many different ways? Uh, because they don't have fossil fuels. <laughs> uh, they don't have a domestic production of fossil fuels. That's right. That's right. Yeah. They don't have substantial deposits of domestic oil and gas and coal. So they really have no choice. And really, as you look around the world and you see who's doing the best job of switching over to renewables, it's the countries that don't have another choice. In the U.S. context, if they could get their politics straightened out, I think we'll see the best example of transitioning to renewables in the U.S. in Hawaii, because it's an island that doesn't have oil and gas and coal. You were talking about selling a narrative of a post-oil future to the public. And if Barack Obama you know, got up there and totally lost his mind and told everybody the type of things that you've been saying to us here today and tried to sell the story of a world where we don't drive our cars, where we take rail everywhere, where we grow our food locally, he would probably just lose, right? And at what point does it become a tenable political situation to sell this narrative to a country that can be receptive to these ideas? You said it had to come from the ground up, but could it possibly come from a political leader endorsing these views and selling the country on a vision? I think it could. I think it will eventually, but I just don't think we're there yet. Essentially, the pain isn't great enough to get U.S. consumers to give up their hope for some domestic oil and gas miracle that will let them go back to the good old days. I mean, there's still a lot of people alive that remember when you could buy gasoline for 20 cents a gallon and bomb across the country in a, in a car that got seven miles to the gallon. There's still a lot of people that are sort of clinging to that memory. So we're going to have to wait for those people to die and for more and more people to just have memories of consistently higher prices over time in one part. But in another part, I just think that the pain hasn't gotten great enough. We're still willing to entertain these fantastic stories of energy independence because, first of all, nobody knows enough about oil and gas and energy to know when they're being sold an outrageous story. But also, they really need time to adjust to the new normal of constrained 
fuel supply. It's going to take a while to sink in. And what was outrageous in 2008 is starting to kind of feel like a new normal now, as you mentioned earlier. And you give it another 10 years and, and it'll seem a lot more normal to pay 4 or $5 a gallon for gasoline. But I think to make it politically saleable, it's just going to have to be a lot more pain. We're going to have to get to the point where the average person in the U.S. finally realizes that we have no other choice but to start transitioning to renewables and to pay the higher cost that those renewables bear. As long as you can still hold out to them some hope that there's cheap oil and gas in the future, then they're not going to be willing to go with more expensive renewables, which take up a lot more space, physical space. But once those hopes die, then they're going to start coming around. But it's going to take a while before we get to that point. And then, of course, the other part of it is we just have such a very different political environment now than we had in the past. The U.S. interstate highway system was built under President Eisenhower's initiative, and he was able to just sort of come before the country and say, hey, we're going to do this, and we have to do it for national security reasons, and by the way, it's going to let us build out this fabulous new future and enable people to live in places all around the West where they don't live today and so on, and that was a good vision. And he was able to kind of push it through from the top down without the kind of resistance that you would have to such a project today. If you go farther back, really what we need today, what I would love for Barack Obama to be, is the Teddy Roosevelt sort of a president. To just get up there and say, bully, we're going to do this thing. Really lay out a grand vision and make it happen. But as you point out, that's probably the political kiss of death right now. I don't think the American public is ready for that. So we're going to have to wait. We're going to have to wait until things are painful enough that the public is ready for that. And we're going to have to wait for a leader who's got that kind of bold leadership and the character to really push that kind of thing through. And frankly, if you look at history, it's probably going to be a Republican president who does it. There's many in the peak oil community who've been thinking for years about energy collapse scenarios. And so in your view, is it a massive shutdown of the global economy that is due to peak oil that makes something like that happen, that provides that opening for a leader to actually lay out that vision of a lower energy future? That would be part of it. There would be a lot of economic pain associated with a new public willingness to embrace that kind of an idea. I try to avoid the words collapse or shut down because they seem so absolute and final. And instead, the scenario that I see is more a kind of a slow contraction, a slow constriction of economic activity and output. Some of it would be healthy, like leaving out a lot of the waste that we've got today, becoming more efficient. It would be healthy on a human health basis. We'd have people walking more than sitting. Along with the decline of energy, you're going to have the decline of obesity, things like that. Even in the worst case scenario, let's say we don't do anything and we just exploit our fossil fuels until we can't anymore and they go into a decline and then the global economy declines along with it. That isn't going to happen overnight. I wouldn't necessarily use the word collapse. Or if I did, you know, it would be with the caveat that, yeah, it took a hundred years for the Roman Empire to collapse. So if that's what you mean when you say massive shutdown or, or collapse, if you're talking about a hundred years, then maybe I would agree with that if we don't do anything. But there is still time for us to have the leadership and make the choices that would enable us to start executing this decades-long transition away from cars and roads and away from fossil fuels and toward an entirely different 
topography of power generation and energy supply and transportation in the future. But it takes decades to accomplish those transitions. They don't happen overnight. And if you don't start on them now, then you don't get where you need to get 20 or 30 years from now. It isn't something that we can just wait until the moment when everybody goes, we got a problem to start working on. If we do wait that long, then we will have probably some fairly abrupt collapse type scenarios. Again, it'll probably alternate between chronic and acute phases, but there is still time for us to start doing these kinds of transitions, but we have to start on it soon. I think my expectation is that global oil supply will begin its terminal decline phase probably sometime around late 2014, early 2015. It'll be slow at first and then it'll accelerate. I still expect global gas and coal to also peak and go into decline by 2025, which is not that long into the future. So what we do over the next two decades in terms of deciding to take this bull by the horns and start making those transitions is just crucial. If we waste those next two decades like we wasted the last 30 years when we should have been embarking on this kind of a transition, we're going to really be screwed. But we don't have to. We don't have to blow it again. We do have time. But we have to really start getting serious about it now. Like a sound you hear that lingers in your ear But you can't forget from sundown to sunset It's all in the air, you hear it everywhere No matter what you do, it's gonna And that wraps up our conversation with Chris Nelder about oil, gas, the U.S. energy infrastructure, how it would take half a million new wells to provide the energy independence that some people are talking about within the United States. So you can look forward to gas wells in your backyard if that's the case. But to break down some of the more recent global energy issues that we've been seeing in the news, such as the Indian grid collapse that happened last week, we're joined by Gregor McDonald, who has written for numerous publications about energy transition and energy issues. And so we're fortunate to have Gregor McDonald here today. Gregor, could you tell us why India's grid collapsed last week? Well, there's going to be a fair amount of dispute over precisely what caused the, the blackout. In other words, if you try to answer that question down to a level of precision, it's going to be very difficult. If I place India's energy needs and its energy deficits in a larger context, maybe that might be a good way to, to try to address the problem of what caused the blackout. India has 18% of the world's population, but it only has 4.5% of the world's energy consumption. That's an enormous disparity, which says a lot about how many citizens of India are not even on the power grid yet. I mean, if you compare that to a country like China, which has about 19% of the world population, but has 21% of the world's 
energy consumption. You can see that what's going on in India is that compared to even China, there's been sort of this big mega story of, of arrested industrial development. So when we think about India, first, it's important to recall that a lot of citizens of India are not even on the grid yet. And the way other citizens will come onto the grid are through fairly homemade or non-regulated means of plugging in. So at the moment, the one sort of more general explanation that people can agree on as to how this mega blackout occurred in India. And again, when we talk about India, we're, we're talking in mega terms. I mean, if you look at just individual states in India, like Uttar Pradesh, a single state in India will have an enormous population. The one explanation that people have sort of agreed on is that you just have this grotesque difference between supply and demand. You've got citizens, companies, individuals trying to plug into that grid, and the grid's just too fragile and, and can't handle the, the demand. So another thing I think that people kind of overlook here in the United States and Western countries in general is that a 10% of the world's population, 700 million people, got blacked out. Right. This is not a small bit of people. This is a large chunk of the world population. How does how did the world react to this? How did you know, people in the United States react to this? I think they reacted to it in a understandably human way. As human beings, we have lost a kind of conscious connection with the scale at which our systems are currently operating. We've lost touch with the fact that we have these enormous systems, whether it's the global oil energy production and transport uh, of oil system, or whether it's the various power grids in various countries, or the way in which global food and, and grains are imported and exported around the world. We've lost touch with the fact that these systems have grown more tightly coupled over time, that they have integrated increasing levels of interdependency, and we've lost sense, uh, sense of the actual scale. People generally don't wake up each morning thinking about the fact that India has 1.2 billion people. Yes, they know it as a fact, but you know they're not thinking about the fact that individual states in India have several hundred million people. So I almost want to say that the public reaction to India's grid blackout is more along the lines of, wow. There are so many people in India. You know, it's it's not merely a reaction to the blackout. It's a reaction to the grand scale on which the world is currently operating. How do now, you put 700 million people into scale, though? 12 million people died in the eastern front of uh, World War II right. with Russia and Germany. And that's that that was a lot of people. But you think about 700 million, that's enormous. That's right. So what we know from evolutionary psychology is that we are not naturally set up to cognitively carry around concepts of scale of that of that magnitude. We're much better thinking about events that affect 100 people or 200 people or that affect a neighborhood or that affect a city. Uh, even when there's been great blackouts on the eastern seaboard, um, and I believe we had one sometime within the last five to six five to six years, there's still an element of surprise 
um, that that can happen, that there are so many people there, that, oh my gosh, it, it even went across the border to Toronto. You almost get the sense that people are suddenly reminded that there's a, another country that, um, you know, sits above the United States and that, and that the blackout could get into the provinces of uh, Eastern Canada. So yes, that there is often this human reaction to these events. One of the explanations I heard was that potentially drought issues were exacerbating it. And um, I'm sure there's any number of individual factors that just cascaded to cause this complex system to fail. And you've been writing recently about California's energy issues. And I'm wondering about California. It has the eighth largest GDP in the world. Could its infrastructure face similar challenges like what India is facing? I don't think that California is going to face the same type of challenges that India faces because the actual condition of the grid that's currently present in California is quite modern. However, what has happened in California over the past 30 years is that it has increasingly outsourced its energy supply, whether that's becoming more dependent on oil and gasoline imports or whether that's becoming more dependent on electricity imports from other states. And so it's not that the California grid is in a state of disrepair. It's that there's a growing kind of imbalance in the fact that electricity has to come from farther and farther distances to come into California. And California is potentially, you know, the one area where we could see some similarity is that California is beginning to lose its anchoring system within its power grid. And we saw that recently, earlier this year, when it lost half of its nuclear power capacity. Its nuclear power capacity serves as kind of an anchoring foundation for the grid in California. And that does, unfortunately, open up some intriguing and you know precarious possibilities for risk in, in California's power grid. So the United States power grid itself is is slowly becoming more and more outdated. And we've seen brownouts and, and blackouts in some places as the grid struggles to deal with more and more draw that we put on it. Could something like India's power failure, could that happen in places in the United States as we draw more and more power from it and infrastructure begins to fail more and more? First, let me say, anytime that there is a large blackout, it's, it's a very attractive story because it's novel. And, and all stories that are, that are novel and spectacular draw our attention. But from the standpoint of an informed person's perspective, none of this is a, is a surprise. I mean, India has been setting grid capacity targets for 50 years that it, that it has not met each year. And when we think about the United States grid as being outdated, there's sort of two ways in which it's becoming outdated. One, it's just simply aging in, in the same way that a lot of our other infrastructure is, is aging, whether it's our roads and our highways, our intermodal systems, the means by which we get railroads and trucks to, to uh, you know, ports or um, our rail system is simply becoming older in that regard. But there's an emerging issue in the U.S. power grid, which is how is it going to handle the continued, you know, so the emerging contribution of intermittent supply, in other words, wind and solar power, which has intermittency issues, which can be dealt with, 
But those issues do need to be dealt with with technology. We have a system in place where you've got sort of regional regulators of the power grid, and their job is sort of like air traffic controllers. You know, they they sort of relay surpluses in one area and try to offload them into into deficits in other areas. And again, reaching back to California, this loss of the San Onofre nuclear plant is going to highlight some of those issues as the regional grid operators try to pass power around with the fluctuation of demand and so forth. So the U.S. has dreams about greening up its grid, and that's all very good, and, and that's a good goal to have. But we're going to need a more technologically proficient grid uh, for that to happen. So you mentioned the San Onofre nuclear power plant. Could you talk a little bit about the issues there? They've been facing some problems for the last year or so, or maybe longer? I always like to put this sort of in a larger theoretical context. One of the systems thinkers that I really like a lot is a guy named Charles Perrault, and that's P-E-R-R-O-W. And he wrote a book called Normal Accidents. And one of the useful things that Charles has done is he's done analysis of systems in terms of their complexity and in terms of how systems are either tightly coupled or loosely coupled. And what we've seen with the loss of the San Onofre nuclear plant is that the California grid is, is becoming more fragile because of the loss of that power plant. In other words, nuclear power forms for California a kind of baseload or anchoring function. And if you had a blackout in California, you would need not so much the imported power, which comes from out of state, you would need the local power in Southern California, for example. You'd need a power source like a nuclear power plant to restart the grid. And so what's happened is that California has incrementally created an increased dependency on its nu- on its nuclear power. Now, it's functioning okay without San Onofre at the, at the moment, but unfortunately, it's going to have to continue functioning without San Onofre because, and this is getting back to Perot, nuclear power is complex. It's so complex. I mean, what we saw in Japan was that the nuclear power stations withstood the initial uh, hit of the tsunamis, but what they could not withstand was the loss of the land side power sources from which they drew power to um, process their own spent nuclear fuel and so forth. So what's happened in San Onofre is that core features of the power plant's architecture were unfortunately damaged over time because of incorrect software programming. And it's a problem that really is not fixable easily. And there's a lot of discussion that maybe the plant may not reopen because the cost of repairing it is just too high. But again, nuclear power continues to be an energy source that we imagine as being a solution. But what we haven't considered is its complexity and its expense. And with the the scale of the India blackout, I'm wondering what would happen in the U.S. if 330 million people got blacked out, if the U.S. electric grid failed. It would take a tremendous level of uh, a problem to do something like that because of the way the grid's laid out. 
Um, but people in India are used to having an unreliable grid, so they all have diesel generators. And for some people, they just are used to having an unreliable grid, so it's not as big of a problem. But in the U.S., we're used to having a reliable grid. How do you think the reaction would be different? The southwest of the United States and the south of the United States operate and function and depend for a good chunk of the year on air conditioning and the availability of air conditioning. I mean, we have, if you think about all the, all the cities from, say, Atlanta through New Orleans to Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, and so forth, and on through Albuquerque and into Los Angeles, we have a good portion of the country that is doing, those economies in those cities are doing the same quantity of legal work, uh, financial transactions, they have very developed economies. One problem for the United States with any sort of grid breakdown in the south in the summertime or the north in the wintertime would be that you would start lose, rapidly losing big chunks of U.S. productivity and big chunks of the U.S. economy because we've built up the grid in order to counteract seasonality and seasonal uh, weather patterns in order to conduct this work. So, uh, yeah, I mean, none of that would be acceptable culturally. And of course, it would also be very damaging economically. I, I should say that I, I don't currently anticipate a grid failure um, on that scale in the United States. I'm not, uh, I'm not personally negative about the North American power grid. And just sort of reaching back to India, I would mention that looking forward to the extent that India does bring people who are not on the grid onto the grid, we are looking at a future you know, quantity of demand, which is quite, quite huge and quite astonishing. And given that India's um, power grid is, like most of the developing world's power grid, is oriented towards coal fired power, unfortunately, we, you know, we do have to think about the likelihood that non-grid connected Asian citizens in India will come onto the grid and they will represent um, the next leg of demand for coal. So, I mean, there are some big issues that lay ahead as well. I wanted to ask about this technological grid that the U.S. will need to build into the future to deal with some of the challenges of aging infrastructure. And I'm wondering about the challenge of capital constraints that mm -hmm. the world is facing right now. States like California are facing tremendous budget squeezes. What role does capital constraints uh, play in helping to build out the energy infrastructure? As you're aware, here in the United States, we continue to get bogged down in a rather tedious sort of either-or type of argument. And we've been locked in this argument for years and years and years about what the private sector can do versus what the public sector can do, what the government sector can do. In my opinion, if you really look at the history of Western civilization going back several thousand years, when it comes to utilities and it comes to public infrastructure, the government has always played a role in that. And, you know, the reason is that projects at this scale are really oftentimes, or most often, they're simply too large for private capital to take all of the risk. So when we think about the types of infrastructure needs that the United States needs, or even India needs in the future, we're really talking about not only what capital will be made available, but we're really talking about what policy will be. And I think it's useful to, to remind people that, that nuclear power, because of its risk and because of its great complexity and expense, is really not something that would be built without government guarantees. 
in my opinion, the private sector would never build a, a nuclear power plant if it had to build it with all its own capital and take on all the risks. Equally, when it comes to the grid, one of the things that needs to be upgraded in the United States about the grid, and uh, other people have spoken to this issue, is the question of national standards versus uh, state standards. And this is an issue that is going to have to be dealt with at one point. The states and the federal government are going to have to get together. And as they face the prospect of building a new grid, they're going to have to have a single standard. We're going to have to move to a more national standard as we hopefully migrate to a new grid. So I think capital constraint issues are really going to be a mix of depressed economic tech activity in the private sector plus the willingness of the public sector to take on these projects. And that's that's a fairly, uh, that's unknown at this point. I mean, we can already see cultural fears and resistance about government spending, but nevertheless, government is continued to spend a fair amount of capital. We, we spend a lot on defense in America. And uh, recently I've written, you know, we we're probably looking ahead towards a time where a lot of this, some of this dispense spending may have to be revolved or transitioned to public infrastructure spending. Yeah, if we moved all of our our war spending to infrastructure of the United States, we would have a pretty we would have a pretty nice system. So, uh, how does an individual deal with moving away from this old grid and taking on the 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 challenges of a new a new grid that you're talking about? What what does this look like for on the individual level? When uh, my family moved last year from Massachusetts to the state of Oregon, I just did a back of the envelope uh, calculation. We stripped out uh, a tremendous amount of oil use from from our family's annual energy consumption, uh, not only because we transitioned away from oil heat, but we also dropped a, a car uh, coming to Portland, which has better public transportation than Western Massachusetts, which is sort of a, it's a lovely university area, but it is a, a rural area. And one thought I've had recently is that certain regions and certain cities of North America will progress a little bit faster in terms of their own self-awareness and their, their own discretionary local policy choices that they'll make. So, you know, I think that, that cities like Portland if these are issues that are important to you, you might want to think at this point, you know, in this in, in our current stage of development here in the States, where we're, we're moving very slowly away from liquid BTU and we're moving more towards, you know, the grid and public transport. If you sort of want to get ahead a little bit faster, you might want to go towards a like-minded city because in cities like Portland, you're going to have uh, state solar energy policies that are going to be more favorable, that will be more easy. You could either buy solar panels here or you could just switch your power demand, you know, more towards renewable energy providers. So I think the first thing an individual can do, apart from putting solar panels on your roof, is you can also think about getting into states or communities or regions where a lot of other people are thinking the same thing. Because it's, you really need critical mass in these areas to bring costs down and to sort of make things a bit easier so that you're not working um, completely on your own. When we think about energy solutions for the future, I really encourage people to think about not only cost, but risk. Risk has been a unpriced part of cost, whether that's the risk of nuclear power 
or the environmental risks of coal. And economists have a concept called, you know, externalities, and that's where risk or costs are basically laid off into the environment or they're laid off to people who uh, can't defend themselves as much in society. And I think as we go forward here, some of those externalized costs are going to come back into the system. So I, I would encourage people when listening to others pontificate about what sort of energy choices are going to be made in the future and whether or not miracle solutions will be uh, adopted or whatever, to think about the increased costs which will come into energy costs as we bring risks back in and stop offloading them to less fortunate groups or, or whatever. And I, I think that's a good thing. You know, I think, I think we all have to pay more because we've been making other people pay for our energy use. And I, I think the more we as individuals pay for the energy we're actually using, then we'll have a more rational, rigorous energy system. Well, thanks to Gregor McDonald for joining us to talk about the Indian grid collapse and some of the challenges to U.S. energy infrastructure and electricity infrastructure. In following up from that conversation, we spoke with Chris Nelder about thorium, and there was a really great podcast that came out last week from Chris Martinson, the peakprosperity.com website, speaking with Kirk Sorensen about the lifter, the lithium fluoride thorium reactors. And they talked a little bit about thorium. And in conversations recently, I've been talking to people about energy scarcity issues, peak oil. And a lot of people have popped up and said, hey, what about thorium? And I don't know a lot about thorium, even though I've had classes in nuclear physics. We didn't talk a lot about thorium. We talked a lot about uranium. But this podcast goes into detail on thorium, and it does a really great job. And we're actually further off from getting a thorium reactor than I even thought. There's parts of the process that haven't been demonstrated on a reasonable scale yet. And I think that, as Chris Nelder said in our conversation today, if we said today we're going to do a thorium reactor, it's going to take 10 years or so to have it online. And by then, I can't even imagine what the capital and energy constraints are, be, are going to be. And as Gregor McDonald just said, the complexity of nuclear fission, whether you're talking uranium or thorium, is so unbelievably complex. It's so complex that it's hard to do. And so the best option is to go towards renewables. And I was just seeing this week that Italy is actually on track to meet 26% of their renewable energy generation targets by 2020 because their economy is declining so much because their demand for electricity isn't happening as much. And so that's one of the positive sides of economic decline. Even though it's collapsing the market for photovoltaics, it's also reducing the amount of energy and electricity that's demanded by the economy. And so it means that renewables can take up a larger portion of the amount of electricity generation in the grid. So, Justin, you're saying that as people can't afford to buy electricity and the electricity is not available, 
we're going to be using less. And that's a positive thing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's definitely a positive thing. It's kind of the way that the U.S. is using less gasoline than it did back in 2008. Some people have hailed the ability for the U.S. to conserve in gasoline and energy use. But what's actually happening is that Americans are no longer able to afford the same amount of gasoline that they used to purchase. It's kind of the opposite of what the growth as usual folks are really pushing for. They don't want a uh, decrease in usage. They want an increase in usage. And that's really not going to happen. So, Seth, I couldn't believe when Chris Nelder said that oil is not dead dinosaurs. It's algae. That just blew me away because... It's not dead dinosaurs? Yeah, it's not dead dinosaurs. It's you algae. You mean that I was I was taught the wrong thing in school growing up all those years ago? <laughs> yeah. And we call it fossil fuels and we talk about the fossil fuel industry, but it's really algae fuels. Yeah. Algae are responsible for all kinds of stuff. I think they, they do like 90% of the oxygen that we breathe or something like that. I'm not sure. I don't know the exact number. Yeah. I don't know the exact number, but algae does a lot for us. It's true. Algae does a whole lot. Yeah. So ramping up of environmental technologies is really something that has to happen before we run out of our primary source. For, for right now, it's petroleum. And But as these things kind of go away and start becoming less and less available and more and more expensive, we really need to have alternatives in place already. You can't start ramping up these new technologies right when they're needed because they're not going to be available and people are just going are, are to go hungry or people are just going to go energy hungry. They need to be in place before the primary energy sources go away. And that's really not really happening right now. Yeah, it's not happening. And we've had a lot of shows about the drawbacks of technology. And we spoke with Ozzy Zinner about the drawbacks of renewable technologies. But that's not to say that solar and wind aren't the energy sources of the future. They're going to be the only energy sources left. What we were saying in that episode is that we can't expect to run our society the way it runs now on those electricity generating sources of solar and wind. But what we're really talking about with Chris Nelder is the energy infrastructure of the future. We're going to have these renewable energy generating technologies integrated into a new society that operates on really very different principles than our current society, which uses almost 90 million barrels of oil per day. Can you imagine how complex that marketplace is, that every barrel of oil that's being pumped out of the ground is being shipped and moved around to different refineries, 90 different million barrels. Yeah, and what it's also interesting is most of that energy is not really going to you. It's it's supporting the infrastructure that brings you that energy. So you know in a car that's moving, the most of the energy from the engine is going to actually move the car itself. The passengers in the car and the things that you put into inside the car are really incidental to the actual weight of the car itself. So most of that energy that comes from those barrels is not even going to you. It's going to maintain the infrastructure and getting that power to you. I think it's also an interesting point that developing nations like, say, China or India may be willing to pay more for that oil than we are in the United States because we've developed our infrastructure so much. And so it's quite possible that in the future, the energy market may send the oil their direction instead. Um, yeah. But I think because it's because also that they'll pay more for it because a gallon to them is a lot more dear than a, a gallon to us. 
And we spoke a little bit about Germany and the energy transformation that they're undergoing and how they're installing so many rooftop renewable systems. And I wish that the United States had had so much foresight to institute the policies necessary to install so much rooftop solar photovoltaic generation. Because like Chris Nelder was saying, in 2014, 2015, he really sees global oil fields, conventional oil fields, entering a terminal decline phase. And so right now we're on this bumpy plateau of peak oil. We're kind of not growing our oil supply, but we're not really shrinking too much either. And in 2014 to 2015, Chris Nelder really sees that we're going to start hitting the point where global oil output starts shrinking. So you think that austerity economic problems are difficult now. In a few years, just two or three years away, it's really quite possible that global oil conventional output is going to start shrinking. And what that's going to do is it's going to throw our global economy into absolute chaos. Nothing like what we're experiencing now with austerity in Europe and Greece's and Spain's economic collapse. We're talking about economic contraction globally on a scale that has really never been experienced. And this is where some of the darker sides of like global supply chain collapses and things start looking like they're very possible because we're gearing up for another phase of a financial system crash. And no one really knows what it's going to look like necessarily. No one really knows how society is going to shape itself afterwards. But I don't know if it's going to be of the magnitude that collapses the entire global supply chain. It'll definitely make goods much more difficult to ship around. But that next one, that next financial collapse that happens when there is suddenly contracting amounts of energy available, that's when you're starting to see the possibility of a real global supply chain failure. And that's really serious. So Germany having those solar panels on its roof, let's say it institutes a little bit more over the next few years, it's a lot better to have some energy than none. And if they only have you know 20 or 30% of the electricity that's being generated by solar power and another 5, 10, 15% that's being generated by wind power, it's a lot better to have 40 or 50% of the amount of electricity you'd hope to have than to have 0% or 5%. So Germany really is getting prepared for a much more scarce energy future. Having a little bit of energy is a lot better than having none, as those 700 million people in India found out. So in our last episode, we heard from John Michael Greer, and he talked about how we're just entering the denial phase when it comes to peak oil. And then we're looking at the entry into the anger phase. But what we've been talking about today with Gregor and Chris is really about what happens when we hit the acceptance phase, when we've moved through the political revolutions that are likely to happen over the next few years. And if there's any society left, we can start moving into this acceptance phase where we start building a grid that's based on decentralized values, where we can start implementing a renewable energy infrastructure and really start retooling society to embrace these changes, like Gregor was saying at the end of our conversation with him, where you are moving to areas that rely on mass transit more, that are moving to areas that are willing to subsidize and install solar panels on your homes and renewable energy infrastructure. So that's really where we're headed in this grand scheme if we can survive this next uh, round of financial system failure and global decoupling of the derivatives and credit bubble. So Justin, since most of the infrastructure, the transportation infrastructure, the agriculture infrastructure in the United States, in Canada, relies heavily on fossil fuels, 
what happens when these fossil fuels are taken away? I mean, cities out west rely largely on fossil fuels for transportation because there's huge amounts of distance. They're not very compacted at all. And mass transit is really not going to work on those places out there. What happens when you take away these inputs or they make them really expensive? Well, I think already with the drought that we're seeing in the U.S., we're seeing the beginnings of what's going to be a massive population shift from areas in the United States. Places like Las Vegas are starting to reach the point where they're going to run out of water in the foreseeable future. And if droughts like this persist, whole parts of the U.S. are going to become desert and completely unlivable. If you want to see more information about this, there's a really great documentary and book called Cadillac Desert that talks about how the whole West is turning into a desert and the American West is turning into a desert. But then the other factor that you were just talking about, Seth, in terms of mobility that comes with oil and petroleum reserves, these areas like, say, Denver, Colorado, they're connected to the rest of the world by their airport. And already airline industries, the airline industry is in absolute shambles globally. European airlines are suffering as austerity and economic contraction hits. And in the U.S., all of our airlines are experiencing serious issues. So like when Chris said, you know, you think 50 years into the future where finding any oil is going to be really, really difficult, like unbelievably difficult. Places like Denver are going to be incredibly cut off from everything else. Coastal areas are going to be the new places where settlements really thrive. And I think you're going to see a mass migration not only from the desertification of the U.S., the conversion into deserts, but people who are moving to the coasts only because there's boat traffic that can move things north to south. You know, We probably still will have massive super tankers because refining diesel fuel is a lot less energy intensive and complex than refining gasoline. You could bring those massive diesel tankers from perhaps across the ocean still or perhaps from South America. And, you know, I think we'll still have boat traffic and we're going to be speaking to one person in a future episode who has learned a lot about sailing and lives in Boston. We won't give away too much more on that one. But uh, (laughs) for any of you out there who are familiar with uh, these authors, you'll kind of know who we're talking about already. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I was reading an excellent piece by Craig Collins entitled Meet Cannibalistic Capitalism, Globalization's Evil Twin. And he was saying that there's been a lot of people who have decried globalization and have thought that when peak oil and peak debt really take hold of the whole capitalistic system, it's going to potentially cause it to collapse and then we can build a new system that's better. But he was pointing out that that's may not be what happens. And that's one of the things that we've been discussing on our show, but not in the same level of detail that he gets into in this article. It's really excellent in saying that as capitalism starts to lose its globalization phase, as it starts to lose its oil growth phase, there's a lot of profits to be had in the contraction phase as well. And we're about to start seeing the nasty side of capitalism, even more so than what has already existed. We're about to see the cannibalization of municipal budgets that we're already seeing as cities go bankrupt. We're about to see austerity for everybody and turning pretty much everybody into a surf class which is pretty bleak to think about, but it's not like capitalism is suddenly going to go away. It's not like all of the people with the money on the top are just going to give it up for some new you know, community currency economic system or some system that doesn't support growth. 
even in the contraction phase, there's most likely going to be a capitalistic system. That's right. Power does not give up power easily. Once you have that power, you want to hold on to it as, as tightly as you possibly can. And giving yeah. it up is not an easy thing. If it was easy, then everyone would just switch over to the new system when the other one fails. And as we've seen, uh, the entrenched government systems and the entrenched power classes, they don't want to give it up. Yeah. So I wanted to read just a few paragraphs from that article just to highlight some of these points. So Craig Collins writes that a loose alliance of ecology and labor activists, small farmers, indigenous peoples, and human rights advocates has disrupted international economic summits for many years. They say malignant capitalism demolishes habitats, poisons ecosystems, wreaks havoc with the climate, destroys indigenous cultures, pushes farmers off their land into slums, and erodes wages by pitting desperate workers around the globe against one another. And at annual world social forums, these social movements voice their opposition to globalization and growth and unite around the belief that another world is possible. They work towards the day when neoliberal globalization is replaced by a more democratic, equitable, earth-friendly society. Since globalization is so damaging, most activists assume that any future without it is bound to be an improvement. But now it appears that this assumption may be wrong. In fact, for all of its depredations, future generations may someday look back on capitalism's growth phase as the halcyon days of industrial civilization, a naive time before anyone realized that the worst was yet to come. Today, worldwide energy and financial crises that some call peak oil and peak debt are beginning to permanently strangle globalization and growth. At the fulcrum of this historic tipping point lies the hard fact that civilization is running low on the only concentrated source of power we know of, whose energy return on energy invested is large enough to sustain relentless growth. Today, the unparalleled economic takeoff fueled by the age of fossil fuels is reaching its apex. The rapacious fight to the top was powered by the Earth's dwindling hydrocarbon reserves, and from these lofty heights, the drastic drop-off ahead appears perilous. As fossil fuel extraction fails to meet global demand, economic contraction and downward mobility will become the new normal and growth will fade into memory. But will this growthless future bear any resemblance to the one that activists have been fighting for? The more radical activists in the anti-globalization movement also hope that climate chaos, peak oil, and the economic contraction will become game changers. Many assume that economic growth is so essential that capitalism must fail without it. And as it does, social movements will seize the opportunity to transform this collapsing system into a more equitable, sustainable one. Both the optimistic reformers and the radical anti-globalization activists misunderstand the true nature of capitalism and underestimate its ability to withstand and profit handsomely from the great contraction ahead. Growth is not the primary driving force behind capitalism. Profit is. When the overall economic pie is expanding, many firms find it easier to realize profits big enough to continually increase their share price. But periods of crisis and collapse can generate huge profits as well. In fact, during systemic contractions, the dog-eat-dog -dog nature of capitalism creates lucrative opportunities for mergers, hostile takeovers, leveraged buyouts, and more, allowing the most predatory firms to devour their competition. And one of capitalism's central attributes is opportunism. Capitalism is not loyal to any person, nation, corporation, or ideology. It doesn't care about the planet or believe in justice, equality, fairness, liberty, human rights, democracy, world peace, or even economic growth in the free market. Its overriding obsession is maximizing the return on invested capital. Capitalism will pose as a loyal friend of other beliefs and values or betray them in an instant if it advances the drive for profit. Growth is important because it intends to improve the bottom line, and ultimately, capitalism may not last without it. But those who profit from this economic system are not about to throw up their hands and walk off the stage of history just because boom has turned into bust. 
Crisis, conflict, and collapse can be extremely profitable for the opportunists who know where and when to invest. So, Justin, have you thought up a collapse business plan? I think there's tons of great collapse business plans for the opportunists amongst us. We should sell bags of survival beans. I was thinking that I just got back from a long backpacking trip in the mountains. Well, not long, a couple days. But how cool would it be? How much would you pay to have a backpack ready to go for like a month worth of backpacking? You have your your hammock, you have your, your tarps, you have your water purifiers, you have food for a month. You can buy it and go. You're out the door. You can just have that go bag ready to go and pay somebody to have it prepped with all the equipment that you customize online, and yeah. there you go. And I do all the research for you. You don't even have to worry about what's in it because everything that you need to po- I could possibly think of is in that bag, and you're ready to go, and it's going to weigh you know, 20 pounds. Tons of opportunity for, for capitalism's downfall. Actually, speaking of capitalism's ability to profit off of collapse, there's now a company in Britain that is running Greece collapse tours. And if you want to tour a collapsing nation and see what collapse looks like, then you can go to Greece with this tourism agency and they'll take you through all the failing parts of Greek society and tell you why and how it's failing with a group of economists to accompany you. That's great, Justin. I'm just doing a quick <laughs> Google search for collapsebags.com, see if the 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 uh, web domain is available. And it looks like it might be. So the all right, point don't is, be out there steal my idea. It's really terrible to talk about profiting off of misery But it's the truth that there's plenty of people who will do that. And so just because growth is ending, that doesn't mean that all of capitalism is going to collapse and go away. It means that it's only going to start showing its more damaging and darker sides as we move forward. So get ready. It's going to be quite a ride. And as we go along on that journey towards misery and destruction, you have us here to talk to you and We have you to talk to us. We have been getting a lot of feedback from you guys out there. We have recently introduced our $30 for a t-shirt and sticker deal. And we've been sending out t-shirts like crazy. Canada, uh, Sweden, Ireland, Oregon, all over the world (laughs) have been demanding extra environmentalist t-shirts. And we have been humbly accepting and sending them. We have been absolutely humbled at the rate that donations have been pouring in recently, especially with David in Sand Lake, Michigan. Absolutely blown away by your generosity. Thank you so much. And David is a really awesome artist. And I checked out his website at davidhuang.org. That's David, H-U-A-N-G dot org. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, David, but check it out to see all of the really cool metalwork that he's been doing. And it's great to know that we can keep you company as you're creating this really awesome art. David has raised the bar for donations to a whole nother level, a cosmic level per se. <laughs> so yeah, cosmic David level. has donated for life. He, I don't think he ever needs to donate. <laughs> he, is, he is up on his donations for life. We don't need to uh, bother him anymore with for donations. Another great listener we have out there is uh, Aaron out there in Taunton, Massachusetts, who sent us a really, really generous donation. We sent him out a, a t-shirt that he is probably wearing right now and enjoying thoroughly. So thank you so very much, Aaron, for that lovely donation. We've also been sending t-shirts across the world to Kevin in Sweden. And Kevin said that he's going to be teaching some permaculture courses soon. And he's going to be wearing our shirt while doing it. So thanks to Kevin for exposing the extra environmentalists to future permaculture designers. So we really appreciate that, bringing the extra environmentalists to Sweden 
to people who will be studying permaculture in Sweden. Another exceptionally amazing listener we have out there who does a lot of work in her front yard and listens to us while gardening and transforming her front grass yard into a agricultural amazement wonderland of food is Anne out in Fremont, Indiana, who wrote in to tell us all about her agricultural endeavors and to tell us that she listens to us to keep sane while transforming her property. It's great to know that we can keep you company and let you know that you are not crazy for wanting to grow food on your property, even though all your neighbors may look at you with scorn and say, ah, you're affecting my property values. Well, guess what? Their property values are going down anyways. So just because you have a nice garden in your front yard doesn't mean that their property values are going to change their trajectory at all. They should be glad that you're not raising bees in your front yard like my father is. So yeah, thanks for doing that, Ann, and thanks for growing food because with the drought that's going on right now, There's a lot of people who are going to need it. And also, thanks to David in Toronto, in Canada, for donating. We are so grateful for your donation, and we are excited to see the Extra Environmentalist t-shirt on the streets of Toronto, our first one that we've sent to Toronto. So that's exciting. That's right. Thank you so much, David. We've been getting a lot of great emails from everybody recently, but one message I wanted to highlight was from Victor, who's in New York City, and he said that he graduated from an Ivy League business program in May 2010, and he's been working for a huge corporation in New York City since August of 2010, and he always knew there were problems, and he was thinking about quitting from the beginning, and he says that listening to our podcast has helped him think critically and not just accept what he's blasted with by mainstream media on a daily basis, and He knew it was all stupid years ago, but hearing us talk about it from a cultural context that he could identify with in podcast format was the reinforcing hair that broke the camel's back. And so he quit his job and he's going home to Toronto to hopefully get into a postgrad program to study ethnomusicology at University of Toronto or UBC. And so it's exciting to see that, you know, people are listening to the interviews that we're doing and really processing how that information filters into your own life. And I don't think there's any single prescriptive thing that you can tell anyone to do when dealing with those issues. You really have to sit with it, integrate it, and analyze it on your own and see how it plays out in your own life. And so it's great to see that Victor has done that for himself. And we're excited to have him as a podcast listener and excited to hear about his future adventures in ethnomusicology. And so another person we heard from in voicemail format was David, who's left voicemails before Hi, Seth and Justin. It's David out in Vermont here again. I was just listening to uh, episode 15 where you interviewed David Montgomery about his book, Dirt. And uh, it was really fascinating thinking about how the New England landscape has changed a lot from the sheep farming to back to forest and and then looking at some of the hillside vegetable farms that are washing soil down in every single heavy rain event. It's great if you live in the River Valley, though. Anyway, I wanted to recommend that you try and interview David Graber on your show sometime. Uh, maybe you've already got him lined up because he's so cool, but he recently published Debt, The First 5,000 Years, and I just read this really short book he wrote. It was published through Prickly Paradigm Press out of Chicago. It's called uh, Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology, and it basically attempts to answer the question, what would it be like if anthropologists shared all of the information they had about other societies with those of us who are who maybe trying to recreate or create different societies and it's so short it's 105 pages i just read it one afternoon for fun and it was really stimulating 
Thanks for your message, David. And he was actually talking about another episode where we interviewed David Montgomery, who talks about dirt. And I know, Justin, since we have a lot of farmers out there who listen to us while either gardening or farming, that episode number 14 would be a really great episode to listen to because it talks all about how societies can be judged based on their topsoil. And the degrading amount of topsoil kind of marks the end of a of a society. So if you, as your topsoil degrades, so does your society. And I think, I think, you know, we have a lot of listeners out there who are farmers so that this would be a great opportunity to let them hear about that stuff. In addition to quasi periodic and other farmers that we have, I heard from another listener in Australia this week on Twitter. And he said that he is also listening from his tractor. So there's more evidence that so many of our listeners are tuning in from tractors. So you know, maybe we'll do a full audience survey someday and figure out exactly how many people are listening from tractors. But we probably should get some sponsorships for some from some tractor companies, is what you're <laughs> saying, Justin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're gonna be the future podcast of a tractor company. Is this tractor is brought to you by the Extra Environmentalist? <laughs> Go out there and plow your fields. Plow your fields while thinking about collapse. That's that's how it'll work. So yeah, thanks to David for calling in, and thanks for passing on the suggestion to interview David Graber. We might just have him lined up for an interview a bit later in the year, but to be honest, we have so many interviews that we've already recorded over the last few months that are really, truly incredible, and we are excited to get those out to you. So in addition to speaking with people like David Graber, we've got some exciting ones coming out as our next few episodes. So get ready. More on agriculture and even some archaeological looks at agriculture in our upcoming episodes. I wanted to throw out a thanks again to Kevin in California who sent us all those t-shirts. It's been absolutely blowing us away how popular they've been. And everyone's been emailing us back and saying that they're loving the t-shirts and are really liking it. So thanks again to Kevin for sending those uh, t-shirts out to us. Now, people like David who have called in and have left a voicemail, they are receiving links to special mixtapes. And we've been sending our latest mixtape out to all of our voicemail contributors. And don't forget that our past mixtape, we have released it onto our SoundCloud page. And that's at soundcloud.com slash extraenvironmentalist. You can listen to it and download it featuring the words of Alan Watts. And, uh, you know, let us know what you think. Let us know um, if you think it helps to highlight some of the words in Alan Watts' talk. And I listen to it, and I think it's amazing. Alan Watts is one of my favorite orators right next to there, right up there next to Terrence McKenna and uh, all those other guys. But Alan Watts definitely has an amazing message. And to p- mix that up with some some really good music that just makes his words just pop out of there. I also wanted to say thanks to all the people who have been posting our links on Reddit, especially the user on Reddit, Jar Jizzles. He's been throwing out so many links to our show in so many categories. It's just incredible. And he's funneling a lot of traffic to our site, which is really, really awesome. So thanks so much to him and everybody else who's been interacting with the show on Reddit. If you want to share our links around we are more than happy to have that because it just brings more people onto our site and more people listening to the show thanks to everybody who's been spreading the word telling their friends about us sending in donations for t-shirts leaving voicemails and doing so much to help us out because we are just taken aback at the reception everybody has taken to these interviews that we've been doing but you know it's hitting a nerve because more and more everybody's seeing the disconnection of the mainstream media from reality and all we can do is keep speaking about the truth, keep speaking in realistic ways about the issues we're facing as a global civilization, and we're going to keep doing that in the future. That's true. And these episodes are not light episodes. This is not like your 
This American Life or Radio Lab. This is some dense stuff. So you have to not only listen actively for two hours, but then you have to digest all that information, integrate it into your worldview. You got a comment on our last episode. It weighed in at two hours and 22 minutes. And one guy left a comment and he said it could have gone for another two hours if we have guests that good. And I was thinking, oh, man, who's going to listen to a four hour podcast? Like they're just never going <laughs> to tune in. Well, if you want to listen to more two plus hours of podcasts, we have an entire backlog of episodes just like this one you just listened to that you can download for free. And they're all available on our website, which is at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. You can join the conversation where we have all sorts of links going up about these types of issues, as well as discussions with listeners and Justin and I talking back and forth on Facebook where you can find us. So go on there, like us, as well as on Twitter where we post a lot of links and have a lot of discussion as well. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail message, that can be easily arranged because we have an online voicemail box at 919-701-9872. And those last four letters spell out on your touchtone phone, XTRA. Thanks to everybody who's been interacting with us on Twitter and on Facebook. We're posting news articles that we don't have the time to talk about on our show every day on our Facebook page and through our Twitter site that pick up on the themes that we cover in these episodes. So thanks to everybody who's been retweeting them and tweeting back at us. You know, feel free to interact with us anytime on Twitter. If you've got questions, if you've got suggestions, shoot it out there. We'll be glad to respond pretty quickly. Don't forget about our blog, which can be found at extraenvironmentalist.com slash blog or blog.extraenvironmentalist.com. Our blog editor, Louisa, is put, just put out a new article about Occupy Rome where she, she broke down some of the events that are going on in her part of the world. Yeah, a really cool article about what's happening to the arts community and the cultural community there in Italy as cuts are coming down. So really awesome article by Louisa. That's right. And if you too are a writer and aspiring blogger who would like to be featured on our blog, contact Louisa, Louisa at extraenvironmentalist.com where you, you can talk directly to her and arrange to be featured on our blog. Contact us by email at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. And Justin, I think I'm out of ways that you can contact the show. I also wanted to highlight that John Michael Greer will be joining us in the future for more segments. And we've already received a lot of questions for him. So keep those questions coming in. We're going to queue them up. And so when we speak with him again in the near future, we're going to queue all those questions up and fire him his direction and see what we got. So John Michael Greer is always entertaining. A rapid fire Ask a Druid session. Yeah, rapid fire Ask a Druid session. You know, that doesn't happen on many other podcasts. We have way more Druid content than basically any other podcast. You can guarantee that. And I also wanted to give a huge shout out and thank you to our newest extra environmentalist team member who is helping us edit Josh in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Thank you so much for your help. And it's great to have you part of the team helping us out in editing these interviews down. And Josh is helping us out in addition to Kevin in Point Roberts, Washington. And thanks so much again to Kevin from the Sustainable Guidance YouTube channel for all the help that you've been giving us. So Josh and Kevin are going to help make sure that we have at least a little bit more regularity in putting out these episodes two to three times a month for you guys. It's true. So with all that, thanks again for listening and for being an extra environmentalist. And it takes a lot of effort and determination and courage to be who you are and to be an extra environmentalist, especially because 
you know, it's not easy. So get out there and plant a permaculture garden in your front yard. I think what we're going to see coming ahead from peak oil is we're going to see more and more of what people will think of as financial collapse. And that's going to be happening around the world. It probably will start in Europe, but it's going to spread to the United States. It may very well spread to China. It is going to have an impact on places like even Africa, too, you know, because they are depending on us for some of the exports that we send them as well. It's hard to see a good solution to the problems that we're coming to right now. I mean, maybe there are a few mitigating things, you know, that we can have our gardens and we can try to make things better and, you know, not plan for a new bigger car and a new bigger house and a new bigger all of these things. But I think I think a lot of it's a question of how long it takes the whole situation to play out. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of control over it. If, it. if it plays out over a long enough period, it may very well be that some of those mitigating things that we do will actually have a, a reasonably good help for some people. On the next Extra Environmentalist, archaeologist Paul Sinclair on ancient urban agriculture and agricultural transformations. I was in Mozambique during the war with the Rhodesians and the South Africans. And we had quite a strict form of Marxist-Leninist economic control with very little possibility of, shall we say, entrepreneurial activities in the formal sector at least. And with the, the blockades from the South Africans and the Rhodesians and the, the, the problems, and there was starvation in, in the cities and so on, in the city of Maputo and so on. And there was a popular movement, which we called the Zonas Verdes, the Green Zones, which produced food, vegetables and so on, planted vegetables. And this is what saved Maputo and so on. And later on, I've been looking at aspects of permaculture in places like Havana. I had to blink again because the, it looked just like Maputo in 1979. Welcome to College Football Game Day on ESPN. Today we're here in Lincoln, Nebraska, 
for the KSV Dust Bowl between the Wyoming Corn Shuckers and the Nebraska Cowboys. We're joined by our special bowl game team coverage with Chip Chipperson and a special guest commentator. Just in case you're worried about losing your corn to that bright sunshine, we brought in a dark night. I am Batman. That's right, you are Batman, and this is Chip Chipperson from the KFC Dust Bowl here in Lincoln, Nebraska, and we're excited to be covering this exciting sporting event between two of college football's top teams. They've been fighting out all of these incredible dust storms this entire college football season, and we're here to break this game down with the man who breaks down crime. That's right, Batman. That's right. Today we're going to be watching some people that are on the field. They're gonna be knocking heads and knocking shoulders and knocking feet. What I would like to talk about is all the corn that I had to save from the horrible droughts. So Batman, we're gonna be talking a little bit about the things that you've been doing to help alleviate these drought conditions right after the opening kickoff. Let's get down there to the game where they're getting ready to kick off the Cowboys or kicking it off to the corn shuckers. Here we go. It looks like the crowd is going wild as the corn shuckers receive. Yeah, that's right. It looks like he's he's made it up to the 20. He's made it up to the 30, and he's down. And it looks like uh, the corn shuckers are getting ready to move into a wilted offense. It, it looks like they're going to move into a formation that helps maximize the fact that there's so much dry dirt on the field. It's incredible. That's right, Chip Chipperson. When I was flying over Iowa in my bat the other day, seeding the clouds in my bat machine. I saw the Cowboys practicing, and I knew that they were going to need some bat rain. That's why I threw my specially formulated bat juice up into the clouds to make it rain. And as you can see today, Chip, they're really benefiting from that rain. Absolutely there, Batman. Oh, it looks like we're gonna have to hold off on starting this game because a food riot has broken out in the crowd. Let's zoom in and check out what's happening with our reporter down in the stadium. And I'm reporting live from the Dust Bowl game where it looks like a food riot has broken out between two angry looking cowboy men. They're fighting over a hot dog that seems to be the last one in the whole entire stadium, Chip. It looks like they've run out of hot dogs and this last hot dog seems to be the center of the riot. These men are beating each other with their hands and fists. I don't know what's going to happen here, Chip. Well, it's pretty crazy that someone would pay $5,000 for that last hot dog, but you know how concessions are at stadiums. They're off the charts. What do you say about that, Batman? I think I'm going to have to go down there and crack some heads. Let you do that, Batman, and we'll uh, we'll take it to our sponsors, KFC Kentucky Fried Corn, the popcorn lobby of Kentucky. Popcorn, popcorn, it's our fun stuff. We like to eat it. It's so great. I'm the Kentucky Fried Corn Colonel. You know, you all know I'm a pop kernel of fresh corn. You know, you guys all might think that global warming is bad for the economy, but for popcorn, it's a boom industry. All that corn out there in the field, it's freshly popped. We don't even have to microwave it. So next time you're thinking global warming, spew that CO2 in the atmosphere because we're getting more popcorn out here for the KFC. Popcorn, popcorn, it's so fresh. Popcorn, popcorn, it's the best. We love popcorn. All right, this is Chip Chipperson back here, and Batman is down there beating people up in that food right in the stands. The game has been suspended, but I think he's finally 
gotten rid of all of the frustration by using his plain thing, the bat, to drop hot dogs on the crowd, and that has satiated this wily Dust Bowl crowd. Oh, I'm back now, I'm back now, Chip. Thanks, thanks for that. Uh, it was tough, it was touch and go there for a while. Had to use my bat to drop hot dogs on the crowd. Uh, but that, it looks like the game's starting up again. Is that red Kool-Aid on your armor? Is that, uh, well, we won't go into details. It got pretty rowdy out there, Chip. It got real, real rowdy. It's not Kool-Aid. It's not Kool-Aid. All I can say, Batman, if global warming's real, I don't know why it's so cold in this air-conditioned studio. The cold is from my broken childhood dreams. Now, now, Batman, this is the KFC Dust Bowl, sponsored by our wonderful partners at Kentucky Fried Corn. Batman, how do you enjoy the nutritional, delicious food item of popcorn? I like popcorn smashed, mashed, and cold, or in popcorn ball form. Oh man, Batman, it looks like here comes another dust storm. Looks like this dust bowl is gonna have to go on hiatus while we wait for the dust storms to blow over. Well, with that being said, we'll, we'll cut to one of the KFC Dust Bowl game sponsors, Six Hour Energy. The only amount of electricity you can count on in your next blackout. Six Hour Energy, it's the energy drink for your next grid failure. I hate dust storms.